0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12, as this morning we will be studying Zechariah 12.10 through the end of chapter 13. And there is much to say this morning, so we're going to begin by reading one verse together. So stand with me, please. We'll cover all of these verses, but we'll begin this morning by reading the high point in my, in my humble opinion, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as as people this morning formerly defeated by the fall, by our own sin and its stain, by our ungodliness, death, the devil, but who now are victorious in Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to come to these verses this morning. Father, would you help us to see all of our lives in light of the truths that we will taste anew this morning, would you please do that for us? And would you grant us a godly, eternal perspective on today because of the victory that is ours in Jesus? We need your Holy Spirit to help us this morning to not only understand these things, but also to apply them rightly to our thinking and to our hearts, to our lives. We depend upon you for this, and we pray for it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The Psychology of Sports Fandom is something to behold if you step back from it and and look at it from outside. It's kind of hard to do that if you are a sports fan. I'm going to try to help you a little bit this morning. People's moods, even their their outlook on life in general, can rise and fall with the victories and defeats of their particular team. It is uh, I was tempted to say it's a rough time to be a Bengals fan. It's just rough to be a Bengals fan. Are there any genuine Bengals fans here this morning? Praise God for you people. Seriously. And with such enthusiasm, Gene. You have to achieve, on some level, a kind of emotional detachment when your team is losing in order to survive. If you're a serious sports fan, and one of our number, he's not in here right now, he made a conscious decision several years ago after the Bengals blew that, that playoff game. He made a conscious de- decision to stop being a Bengals fan. I will no longer care for the Bengals. This, some fans just associate themselves with their team so thor- thoroughly that it's like they have been victorious or they have been defeated along with these strangers on TV. And does that make sense? If you step back and think about, it, does this make any sense? What what share do we really have in the losses and victories of these people that we're watching on TV? If if they lose, are we going to get fired? If if they win, are are, are we going to get a a, a check, a, a cut of of the the, the bonus money? No. Did we contribute in any way to the loss or to the victory? No, and and yet we feel like we've been defeated or like we have been victorious. And and some of us badly need a victory right now. Much in life seems defeating to us, whether it's a besetting sin, a financial setback, a strained relationship, a health issue, or maybe it's all of those things for some of us. We, We walk today as if we are defeated competitors, and perhaps perhaps that's why we care so much about these strangers. We we just need a victory, even if it's unconnected to us in any real sense. This morning we, we consider the fact that we have a champion who is undefeated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in his death he was victorious over sin and death and the devil. And his eternal victory is completely different than the victory that we share with our favorite team. His victory actually is ours. We share in the win, so to speak. We share in the rewards. We're, we were headed for nothing but defeat by the fall, by, by our sin, by deception, our own ungodliness. But Jesus saw to to it that he would win for us, and we would share in the spoils. That is, that's the victory that we need, and it is more real, it is more far-reaching than any temporal defeat that you may be experiencing this morning. And so, in this text, we're going to focus on the eternal victory that is ours in Christ. We're, we're in the last oracle of Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14. And here in the middle, this section shows that, that in Christ, we are eternally undefeated. So we're going to find several ways in which the Lord causes us to triumph. The first of those is in the notes that you should have picked up on, on the way in. He gives us repentance. He gives us repentance. We want to look at verse 12, in cha- I'm sorry, verse 10 in chapter 12, 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn man's natural state is one of hardness toward god we rebel against him by nature and by choice and there is no place in our fallen hearts for true remorse over these things we cannot stir that up in ourselves we we are born delightfully enslaved to sin even an encounter with the incarnate Jesus Christ did nothing to move Israel to repent of their sin. I mean, he, he preached salvation in himself to them. He depicted visually that salvation through his compassion and his many miracles. And yet, the people remained steadfastly obstinate to him throughout his ministry and life on this, to, to the point that they, have, they eventually killed him. There are, there are many people in the world today who truly believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus. He was a real man. They believe that he was the son of God. They believe that they're sinners. They believe that hell is real. And yet they do not repent and follow him. It is because they have fallen hearts that they can't do anything about. That's what we were. we we were entrenched in rebellion and sin and left to ourselves, we would be defeated by our own callousness of heart to sin and to holiness and to the gospel. Back in Zechariah 11, the people rejected the good shepherd, but here God predicts a time when he will graciously open their eyes to see the great evil of that rejection and murder and they will mourn the text says. The spirit of grace that he mentions in chapter 10 is likely a, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Pleas for mercy are the pleas of God the Son and the Spirit, not pleas of the people. And this coincides with a cross reference in Jeremiah 31 9. If you're taking notes, you might write that down. Jeremiah 31 9. With pleas for mercy. I will lead them back. The, the Son, through the Spirit, pleads for mercy for the people and the Father grants it. Now this verse holds one of the many indications that our God is a triune God. The text says, when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. And that, that Son gave himself up to a piercing that took place on the cross. This this text says, they will look on him whom they've pierced. John 19.37 records a Roman soldier piercing the Lord's side with a spear. They will look on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. God graciously opens the eyes of the dead sinner to see the horror of what has been done to Christ by our sin. There's there's biblical evidence that this happens every time someone is saved. Their eyes are open to their sin. Their eyes are open to what it costs the, the Savior, and they are grieved by this. I think of Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter confronts the Jews with their culpability in the murder of Christ, and then we read in verse 37 of that same chapter, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles' brothers, what shall we do? Lord, open their eyes to see the horror of what their sin had done to the Savior. And that chapter records that 3,000 of them were saved. Paul teaches in Romans chapters 9 through 11 that there will be a large-scale conversion of the Jews in the last days. In chapter 11, he writes that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, has been grafted into the church, there's going to be a massive grafting of the Jews into the church, so much so that he is able to write toward the end of the chapter, and thus all Israel will be saved. Every time someone is saved, they have looked on him whom they have pierced, and they have mourned. Listen to Revelation seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Everyone will wail on account of the Lord Jesus. Now, how how can it be that all will wail? Well, Revelation later would show us that the ungodly, those who have steadfastly and persistently rejected the Lord Jesus, they will wail in terror and despair. Revelation six fifteen. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mo- rocks and the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The ungodly, they will wail on the last day. They will mourn out of terror and despair. The elect of God grieve from godly sorrow. Zechariah depicts this for us in a couple of ways. He gives us a couple of, a couple of pictures of, of deep mourning. We've already seen in verse 10, they will mourn for him as for an only child. Weep bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn. Of course, we should hear in that New Testament references to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only son. Firstborn. John 3.16, Romans 8.29 and and elsewhere. But he he gives us a second picture, this, this deep mourning. And that's a great picture, mourning for an only child, for a firstborn. He gives us another in verse 11. Look at verse 11. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. King Josiah was killed at Megiddo in 2 Kings 23. Now, who was Josiah? He was a godly king, a a desperately needed godly king in Judah. He made many reforms in Israel, try, seeking to turn the people away from their false worship, seeking to turn them back to God, but he was killed by Pharaoh Nico. At the time, it, 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 it appeared that, oh, now, now our hope for returning to the Lord is 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 gone. It has died with Josiah. The death of, of hope. The, these examples show deep sorrow. And Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 7 that this Deep sorrow, this is characteristic of repentance unto salvation. Godly sorrow, as Paul depicts it there, is is not the kind of of self-centered remorse that we all experienced even in our lostness that is a a grief over the consequences of sin, but rather, godly sorrow grieves the sin and, and what it has required of the Lord Jesus. God kindly gives this to the sinner, opens their eyes and their heart that they might experience that godly sorrow. Look with me now at verse 12. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself. And their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. There are a couple of things to note here in these last few verses of chapter twelve. First of all, this, this morning will be among all kinds of people and all generations. So David is mentioned, and so is Nathan. Nathan was David's son. So we got multiple generations in the kingly line. Levi has a grandson named Shimei. So multiple generations in the priestly line. And then the last verse covers everybody else and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. This, this will be not just a single generational mourning, but all the generations and all the classes of people, they will all mourn, all people, all generations, second that they will all mourn by themselves indicates this is not going to be a representative mourning. We we see a a kind of representative mourning in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, as he prays and mourns the sins of the people that God might bring them back into the land. What we see here is that godly sorrow will reach to every individual of the elect. All will mourn him whom they have pierced. They will do this because of the great grace and mercy of God. We we had a, a, a terrible enemy in the form of our own fallen hearts preventing us from seeing our sin rightly and seeing Jesus rightly. But he was pierced for us. In that victorious act, he was pierced for us and he defeated our fallenness by his spirit he he broke through your fallenness if you're in christ the spirit broke through your fallenness to open your eyes the church the church is given victory through repentance in jesus christ second he provides the church with a cleansing fountain a cleansing fountain verse 1 of chapter 13 On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Sin leaves a a, a residue, we might say. It stains you. makes you dirty. It it contaminates you before God. Jeremiah 2.22 says, The stain of your guilt is before me. Sin isn't just an act that we perform. Its blackness reflects the condition of our fallen hearts. We, We wear the guilt of our sin before a holy God. And left to ourselves, that guilt would defeat us. It would take us to eternal judgment because God says of himself in Exodus 34 that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. If anyone would be reconciled to God, they they must be cleansed of that stain of sin. It must be washed away. And the Bible teaches that Jesus himself is a fountain opened for our cleansing. We've already mentioned that John views the piercing of the Lord Jesus as as having taken place on the cross in John 19. Listen to that whole verse. This is John 19.34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Zechariah 13.1, There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Blood and water flowing from Jesus' side. Jesus' blood washes the stain of sin. As pure as the purest of water washes away dirt and muck. Remember Zechariah 3, that vision where the, the angel of the Lord took the high priest Joshua, he took, took his, his filthy vestments off of him and put on him pure vestments. listen to, to, to Revelation 7:14. They, the church, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' blood makes us white removes, completely removes our sinful stains. But the blood of Jesus, it does not only remove stains, it also frees us from the power of sin itself. Not just the stain, but what's underneath it, the power of sin. Listen, this is First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. That is worth writing down and, and revisiting over and over, all of us. This is First Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, the kingdom of God? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For, for this reason, so many of our hymns focus on the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Can you think with me for a minute what it would be like to hear some of the, the hymns that we sing if you're, you're completely uninitiated in the things of the faith? Some of our songs would sound so macabre to the outsider. And yet to us it is, it is music to our ears there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, all their guilty stains. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Sin is powerful, and we need to believe that. There is no sin so small that it cannot doom us to hell eternally. Sin is terribly powerful, but there is no sin so great, no sin so great That Jesus' blood cannot drown it in a sea of forgetfulness. His blood defeated the stain of your sin, and now He shares that victory with you forevermore. For some of us, man, that is a timely reminder, is it not? There there are those of us who who struggle with memories of those old stains. They plague us and they continue to lie to us, saying, nothing can overcome the past. You're still guilty. You're still guilty. You're still filthy. But the church will not be defeated by the stain of sin. Jesus, in his blood, he has given us victory by washing us clean of sin's stain. There's a third way that he causes us to triumph here. It's that he protects the church from deception. He protects the church from deception. Verse 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Idols, false prophets, these were the the dual plague of the people prior to the exile. These false prophets were in a sense, they were the the purveyors of, of idols their mouths were filled with lies by unclean spirits. That's why he, he couples the prophets with unclean spirits in verse 2. I'll remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Deuteronomy 13 teaches us that this is the conscious intention of false prophets. They, they lead the people away from the Lord to idolatry. Which we see happening all over the Old Testament. Now, now, given that context, there's there's wide agreement among commentators that Zechariah is speaking here not of prophets in general, but of false prophets specifically. In fact, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, renders prophets in verse 2, pseudo-prophetas, that's false prophets. A modern example of this might be the embrace of, of many nominal Christians of the sexual idolatry of our culture. There's a great documentary on Amazon Prime right now called Such Were Some of You, and it is largely the testimonies of former homosexuals who came out of that lifestyle. Now, I wouldn't agree with everything that's said in this this video, but I have watched it twice now. I have found it very encouraging to me. Many of these people describe their former enslavement to homosexuality as idolatry. They now characterize it as idolatry. They were worshiping themselves and ungodly sexual activity. And some of them noted that they were lied to by people, other people who claimed to be believers. People who claimed to be believers were saying to them, this is okay. This is who you are. This is who God created you to be it 's what He created you to do, and several of these these people who come out of that lifestyle, they now characterize those statements as satanic lies, evil spirits moving liars to lead others into idolatry. It happened throughout it happened throughout the the history of Israel. It happens even now among us, but there is protection from the deception from that deception in the new covenant by the indwelling spirit of the risen Christ. He gives us spiritual discernment. He keeps us in the faith. He gives us the Bible by which we can measure any word spoken by anyone. He gives us warnings against idolatry. He helps us to distinguish between spirits as John encourages us to do in 1 John 4.1. Now, we might ask, how can there be false prophets at all if Zechariah says they're going to be cut off? As with the rest of the oracle, there's a sense in which these things are being fulfilled in the church age, but they will ultimately be fulfilled in in the return of Christ. So in, in the present age, among Christians, false prophets and idols are cut off in the sense that the church itself hates them and exposes them. I think that's what we see in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And if anyone again prophesies his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, or you speak lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. So great will be the zeal of God's people for the Lord Jesus with this accompanying hatred for false worship that even family members will not tolerate among themselves those who seek to lead God's people astray. Now there are a couple, of, a couple of ways to take the next two verses. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Now, some, some commentators would, would, would say that this means that the church will be so set against false prophets that the false prophets will be forced to go underground. They won't want to be known as prophets anymore. They'll keep things quiet. They'll claim, oh, I'm just a farmer but they won't be able to hide completely because of the marks on their backs that they received in pagan rituals. That's that's one view out there. Another is that God is going to so eradicate false prophecy that even those who were false prophets will repent of this. Verse verse 4, look at verse 4. They'll be ashamed of their visions. They're they're going to lay aside the mantle of a prophet, that hairy cloak. They're, They're going to lay that aside. They're going to take up a normal life. And, and by that interpretation, those wounds on their backs were the blows of friends who helped them to see the error of their ways. So those are the two positions. If I had to choose one, I would probably take the latter because it seems that the emphasis of this passage is on God's conquest over idols and false prophets. And the idea of, of false prophets merely going underground doesn't seem to fit very well. But it, it's not super not super clear? What is clear? Is that the true church will be zealous for true worship, and so that they will not tolerate idols nor those who lead them into idolatry? I think of the the many prosperity gospel preachers out there today leading people into great materialism and worship of self and I, I think you you see a measured fulfillment of this prophecy that is the church's great great hatred for idolatry and distaste for all that All those things, I think we see a measured fulfillment of that today in the great distaste that conservative Christians feel toward the Joel Osteens and the the Creflo Dollars of the world. The ancient people of Israel were defeated. They were defeated by idolatry, by false prophets. We will not be defeated by those things. There there will come a day when these things will be completely eradicated, when the Lord Jesus casts all evildoers into the lake of fire. Until that day, Christ has earned the right to give us his own spirit to live inside of us. We can rest assured that the Lord is not going to lose his bride to false worship. He's going to keep her safe. He leads the church to triumph by protecting us from deception. Finally, he causes the church to triumph in in another way, he refines the church into his image. He refines the church into his image. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now notice that this is God calling for the sword to strike the shepherd. It makes me think of Isaiah 53, pleased the Lord to crush him. Whereas he moved against the evil spirits in previous passages, and Ze- evil shepherds in previous passages in Zechariah, here he comes down on the good shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. And we should see in this the atonement of the Lord Jesus. God pouring out his wrath on his own son for our sin. Listen to Jesus in Matthew twenty-six thirty-one. Then Jesus said to them, speaking to the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That chapter records Jesus' arrest, he was then condemned, but his disciples, they all abandoned him. And we might, we might think of that as a oh, that's, that's a tremendous defeat. But the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only gathered them back to his cause of victory, but empowered them. To walk in light of that victory and in his mission. This, this striking and subsequent victory is apparent also in other places in the Scriptures. One, one example I would give is, is Peter's I'm sorry, Stephen's stoning in Acts, and then the subsequent scattering of the church. Stephen was stoned by the Jews for preaching the truth about Jesus Christ, even echoed the heart of Christ as he was dying. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The very next verse. Records, and Saul approved of his execution. He approved of Stephen's execution. Listen to Acts eight one. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now why why might I propose that the stoning of Stephen was in some sense like the striking of the shepherd? Well, because of what Jesus said to Saul in this context when he confronted him one chapter later. Jesus said, after the stoning of Stephen, he said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? That that identification of Jesus with his church and the church with Jesus, that coincides with the Lord's teaching back in Matthew 25, where he he told us that, listen, you do something to the least in the church, you've done it to me. Show a believer kindness, you've shown Christ kindness. Show a believer cruelty, you've shown Christ cruelty. Strike the sheep and you've struck the shepherd. Striking this shepherd causes the scattering of the sheep. And of course, we, 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 I just read it to you in Acts 8.1, but we see it throughout the book of Acts. Persecution comes and, and, and the people are scattered and the gospel expands. Gospel ministry, we find, brings heat, and fire upon the church. And that is reflected here in Zechariah. Look at verses 8 and 9. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver. Test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. As we we learned when we studied 1 Peter months ago, faithful discipleship will bring the displeasure and hatred of the world upon the church. Persecution comes, the church suffers. Now what might we make of this idea here in in verse 8, that two-thirds will be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not super confident, but I would lean towards saying that that in accordance with Jesus' parable, the, the parable of the sower, persecution exposes the false faith of many professing believers. Some hear the gospel. Many, it would seem, hear the gospel. They're immediately joyful about it, but when persecution or tribulation arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And then it's that that remaining third that are put through the refining fire. We, We know that God sovereignly brings persecution upon the church. It's a gracious means of our refining, both corporate refining, the church at large, and individuals as well. Persecution and trial separates the nominal believer from the true believer. And for the true believer, suffering tests our faith both proving it to be true, and making it stronger. Now Malachi, which is the next book that we'll be studying, Lord willing, in, in January, Malachi teaches this very thing. Malachi 3.3, 3, he writes, He will sit, the Lord will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So this, this refining, it tests our faith, makes us stronger, conforms us to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it purifies us in our character and conduct. And the results for the believer the result is that we call upon the name of the Lord rather than falling away. On the last day, the, the detested genuineness of, of our faith results in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. It confirms us to be believers. It confirms the truth that we are his people. He is our God. All of this is provided through the striking of the shepherd. The testing comes to all believers. Peter wrote in his his first epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what it is to be a believer. Testing of our faith through difficulty, trial, persecution. Some of us are feeling this acutely right now. Feeling defeated. There are varying degrees of intensity of trials in our congregation and whatever yours is, just know that this comes from the hand of God. God is a sovereign God. He is refining you, conforming you to the image of Christ. He's proving your faith. And part of that proving, part of that test is, what will you say in the midst of this thing that you can't understand and in the uncertainty of which you just don't know how it's going to end. What what will you say? Lord, how could you do this to me? What what, what is going on? Don't, Don't you want to reconsider this? Lord, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to let you try again. This is the wrong path. What will you say? How about this from the last verse of the text? The Lord is my God the Lord is my God in the midst of my difficulty the Lord is my God no difficulty will triumph over me because the Lord is my God no trial will cause me to fall away because I am His He is mine don't need to know how this trial ends because I know how all history it ends it ends with me praising Him saying eternally, the Lord is my God. The refining is from him and he uses it to complete his victory in us. If you are a believer in Christ, you can know you will not be defeated by the natural unrepentant state of your own heart. The Lord has won that battle by breaking through your fallenness, opening your eyes to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the deadliness of your sin and giving you true godly sorrow unto repentance. He's already won that. You can know that you will not be defeated by the stain of your own sin. Jesus has provided you with cleansing. His own blood washed you white as snow. He won that there will be no defeat. You can know that you will not be defeated by false worship and deception because Jesus has provided you. He has provided you with his own spirit living inside of you. He gives you discernment and a desire for true worship. And you will not be defeated by suffering. Jesus is refining you. He's refining you unto glory. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will triumph in all these things. In all things eternal, the church is undefeated in Christ. We must meditate on these things. We must meditate on these things because we have a mission that we've been called to. We're so easily distracted from it because of temporal defeats. But listen, meditation on our triumph in Christ puts those temporal defeats in place godly, eternal perspective, and it moves us to continue serving Him, continue saying to Him and to all the world and to believers around us, the Lord is my God. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm going to pray and... uh, And we'll share a brief moment of silent reflection before we sing a final song. Let's pray together. Father, many of us have known the kindnesses expressed this morning. We know what it's like to feel that godly sorrow. We know what it's like to repent. We know what it's like to have our sins washed away. We know what it's like to be given a holy zeal for true worship. And we know what it's like to be refined and to find You sufficient in that refining. Father, there may be those among us who do not. And so we pray that this morning You would do this gracious thing of opening their eyes to look upon Him whom they have pierced and to mourn Him. Pray that You would move them to repentance and trust in Jesus alone, knowing that His blood alone can cleanse them from the sin that separates them from You. Lord, let them know that joy this morning. Those of us who have followed You for years, Lord, we know these things, and yet it is so good to hear them again. We pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to preach to us the victory that we have in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.